Hey, welcome to the show. Today we have Mark McGrath, and it is going to be an exciting one. Mark is a financial advisor. We're going to get into it by getting you to tell us your story of who you are, what you do, how you got there. Sure. Yeah. Uh, so like you said, I'm, I'm a financial advisor. My title is wealth advisor, but basically the work I do revolves around financial planning and portfolio management. So we do a lot of retirement planning, uh, you know, tax guidance to a certain degree, estate planning, insurance planning, that type of thing. Um, how I got here. Yeah. I, uh, I was going to university to be a dentist of all things. Not like I wasn't far along. I was in like second year sciences and I just realized I had absolutely no business becoming a dentist. And so uh, a friend of mine introduced me to a course called the Canadian securities course, which is sort of the gateway course that you need in Canada to, um, to become uh, an advisor. <clears throat> and I just, I just fell in love with it. So I stopped doing sciences, started doing that full time. Uh, I got a job at the bank, worked my way onto the investment side and then um, just started focusing on more financial planning courses and, uh, and uh, yeah, here I am today, about 10 years later. Yeah, absolutely. So it's kind of interesting how we met. Yeah, I, you know, we have each other on Twitter. And then I saw that mm-hmm. you were posting about uh, something I always say where people think they're going to get into passive income when they buy rental properties. And I always say to everyone who tells me that is talk to a landlord and then you'll find out how passive that truly is. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that caught my attention. So I thought I'd reach out and I would want to uh, get into that more. Right. So, like, I mean, often real estate. Is, um, is is viewed as the more safe approach. But mm. I mean, that's relative depending on, uh, you know, people's patience level for lack of better description. And, and depending on how, if you can carry it, like if you're living day by day and you're choking, you risk losing it. But, uh, and nobody realizes that because everyone thinks that their maximum budget is exactly what they can afford, yeah. but they don't calculate what changes in the market. So, but with that being said, I mean, let's get into your venture. I mean, you were a landlord mm-hmm. and you're actually unloading your uh, yep. properties for the most part. So let's get into yep. what, what's the motivation behind that and what's your thought process? Yeah, I, so I wasn't like, you know, I didn't have a, a ton of properties or anything. I had two rentals. I've got my home, which I live in and, um, and own, well, partially own the bank owns a good chunk of it, but, um, <clears throat> yeah, it, it started around maybe, maybe six years ago or so I had a chunk of money and, uh, still working as an advisor, but I was attracted to real estate. I think for the same reason that, you know, a lot of people are attracted to real estate. You've got the historical performance, the leverage that's involved, the idea of somebody else paying your mortgage, the concept of it being, you know, free money or passive income to a degree. And at one point I was like, okay, I'm going to build a, I'm going to build a real estate empire here. Um, and so I, I, you know, I read a bunch of books, like you know, go to the library and find every real estate investment book that you can find, read all that, spent a ton of time on the, uh, the bigger pockets forums, which is mostly a U.S. based investor forum, but, um, had a lot of great insights there. And yeah, I put a down payment on a, a condo and what I thought was gonna be a hot market. I'm also not like a handyman at all. And so the concept of buying like a single family property or a duplex or anything that was going to involve me doing physical labor at that property was off the table because I just I'm not capable of that. Um so I bought a condo in I guess 2016, I want to say it was a pre-sale. And, and then I almost immediately bought another one, uh, another pre-sale. So both of these kind of came online and um around 2018, I guess it was. And uh, yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing you know, wrong with it per se. I just, I hired property managers <clears throat> just for tenant placement and that type of thing. Like I, you know, I've got enough of a job being a financial advisor that I wasn't trying to create a second job for myself. So I, tr- I tried to streamline it and make it as passive as, as possible. Uh, I had good tenants. Like I've never really had any issue with tenants. Um, you know, no property destruction or late rent or anything like that, which is which has been nice. But what I found that I really didn't like about it was, I guess, two things. One, there's a huge amount of 
risk. And I don't think a lot of us notice that risk for two reasons. One, we don't price our properties every day, right? Like I, a lot of the work I do is in, is in the stock markets where prices are available to you every second. So you can see the volatility of your investment every single time you look at your, at your portfolio. And we don't see that with real estate. But if you plot monthly prices going back, you know, just historically, if you take monthly data and you, and you, you plot it out, real estate is volatile. It's just that we're not checking it every day. So there's that, that risk that I, I don't think a lot of people understand well. There's also the concentration risk, right? I mean, it's a huge portion of your net worth that ends up tied to a couple of addresses, right? And it's a single building in some small corner of the world. And there's a ton of risk there. I mean, there's political risk if the government changes rules. But at the end of the day, your net worth statement becomes dominated by by this one asset class, and it's usually a couple of addresses. And I didn't like that. And then lastly, the uh, the lack of liquidity and the carrying costs uh, just kind of gnawed away at me. Like I had all this equity in these properties and I just you can't sell them brick by brick. Like if I wanted to take a chunk of money, I had two options, borrow, and we know where interest rates are today. So that's an expensive way to access your capital. And uh, sell was the only was the only other option, right? Yeah, I think for a lot of investors, that's probably a benefit, right? Because they can't tinker. I mean, the money's tied up. They de facto end up being long-term investors. That's probably a, a benefit in some cases. But for me, I just wanted the money back. And so I, uh, I listed the properties and one sold. Uh, the other one is under contract right now. So hopefully that's done. And then uh, I'm out. See you later. Yeah, absolutely. I, I get that part. And I, and I can totally understand that. Like, And that's the thing, right? Like, I personally, and this has been my experience, and it's just generally my experience, mm-hmm. is that I, that I tend to observe is real estate is more of the safe things overall. Uh, and here's what I mean by, and here's my perspective by it is that, um, we'll take a stock. I'm going to pick on stocks now. Um, (laughs) um, a stock can go to zero, the likelihood, unless you're picking random stocks. I mean, if you pick a blue chip stock, the likelihood is very little, but Mm -hmm. it can go to zero where at the end of the day, even if the housing market goes to zero, you still Mm -hmm. have the land, right? And that's something you always have land and always have rent. Now, mm-hmm. what people don't calculate is exactly what you said there. Nobody calculates the fertility of the uh, market. And mm-hmm. you and a lot of times people tend to over leverage, as I was saying in the beginning, to get yeah. these properties. So mm-hmm. what ends up happening is you lose your job. As an example, you lose your job and you have your money in the stocks. You just stop contributing. You just yep. stop or you cash out. That's easy, liquid money. May mm-hmm. not be ideal, but it's easy. You lose your job and you have property in a mortgage. If you don't have the time it takes to sell that property without missing a payment, you're up craps creek. Mm-hmm. Because if it takes six months to get your money out and you've got three months payment, there's really no way around that. Yeah. Right? No, so, and not only that, I think some of the some of the risk is that the event that led to your job loss might also be the event that leads to a drop in the property value, right? I mean, if we're talking yes. about a recession or something like that, and that's the reason that you've lost your job, it's a bit of a double whammy in, in that sense, right? Where property values could come down, interest rates are going up, you've lost your job, you do have to sell the property, but now you've got to sell while the market's going down or there's no liquidity in the market and your house could sit there for, for months and months and all of a sudden the bank's calling. Right. And that's what, and this is what I mean. So when I say it's a safer investment, I'm talking about people who, and this is my ideal person that I'm talking about who should, mm-hmm. who should be investing in real estate is somebody who has is able to take on the purchase of a property for a seven to 10 year term, have a year's income in the bank account that they don't touch as a reserve. That's Mm -hmm. after buying the property and they're collecting rent. 
Now, if you're mm-hmm. in that position, you can afford the wave. But mm-hmm. let's be honest, majority of Canadians are not in that position. I, well, I agree. And I see it like in my, in my role because people come to me all the time with money questions. And so I think it's really common, you know, just what you mentioned, where people, it, it seems like the default option for a lot of people after that they've purchased their primary residence is to either eventually upsize and try to keep the old property as a, as a rental or to immediately seek out a rental as an investment, right? But I, and I tweeted about this, I think yesterday, if it wasn't this morning, but like I, and I, I'm sure if you're dealing with real estate investors, you know, I'm sure there's a lot of them out there that know how to analyze properties, know how to analyze cash on cash returns, know what their returns are. But in my experience, those many who are buying these properties have no idea what their returns are. It's a buy and hope strategy. And that's not necessarily going to have a bad outcome, but there is a risk to that, as you mentioned, right? I mean, there's cash flow issues and um, over-leveraging issues and that type of thing. So I, I think that um, people are, can get themselves into dangerous positions with real estate and not see the risk until it materializes. And when it does, you know, we say risk happens slowly and then all of a sudden. Absolutely. And and then goes to the other point there, right? Like it's one of those things that you're lucky you didn't have any tenant problems, but if you're mm-hmm. in a spot and you have a house where it's not landlord friendly mm-hmm. and you have tenant issues, yep. that can cause a whole whack of other problems on top of everything else that we talked about. Mm-hmm. Now, again, it goes, if you're in a healthy spot, I don't think, I think real estate is one of those ones that you have a, a, st- a stable financial background. Like, I mean, like, like a backing, everything's there and mm-hmm. you want to figure out where else to put your money. Yeah. It's not in lieu of, right? Yeah. Like, and, and that's, that's my perspective of real estate. So if you're not in a healthy uh, financial balance, then I don't mm-hmm. think it's a good investment. Um, if you're yeah. in a, you know, if you're in a healthy financial balance, why not? Then there's the opportunity. That's when you can assess your risk and whether you can handle it or not. But I think people yeah. should get into it w- eyes wide open. Oh, totally. And, and, you know, as we say in the investment world, diversification is the only free lunch, right? And so you mentioned, you know, stock picking earlier. I, I don't generally believe in picking individual stocks. That's me. Um, I build very diversified portfolios of, of global stocks. And so, you know, the probability of the entire global market going to zero to your point, is probably similar to the probability of real estate going to zero, right? An individual stock, yes, that that happens quite frequently, Um, but with a well-diversified portfolio, less so. And so with real estate, it's the same thing, right? Like if you're concentrating all of your money into your real estate, you have this concentration risk, you have this lack of diversification. So I think not only should you have, you know, the cash flow, you know, the backstop of whatever it was, you know, a year's worth of income or um, <clears throat> kind of an emergency fund or some way to play defense, but think about diversifying outside of real estate as well, right? Like in my investment portfolio, I have REITs, real estate investment trusts. I can I access ask you about a portfolio. That. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I can access a portfolio of tens of thousands of properties across the country for a nominal fee where I'm not doing any of the work and I'm hiring experts to manage the properties, source the properties and uh, and deal with all the, the issues, the attendance issues and everything like that. Because really what we want as investors is we're trying to capture the returns of this asset class. So when I'm buying a house, I'm trying to capture the returns of real estate. And for me, if there's a more liquid, cost-effective and diversified way to do that, and again, this is me, I'd much rather just own a REIT instead of owning a, you know, a, a single address or two. That makes sense. Again, the address comes with a certain level of required maintenance, right? Now you got one into the condo market. Now let, let's mm-hmm. look let's compare condos to single family home as an example Mm -hmm. um now personally i'm not a single family home kind of fan i'm a fan Mm -hmm. for me to live in one i'm a fan for me to own it as my home i live in sure but i'm not a fan of them as an investment portfolio but that's besides the point Mm -hmm. so going into a condo versus that single family home because that's majority of people watching or that's exactly what they're thinking of uh when you go with condo you don't have any maintenance issues whatsoever 
in terms of the property, mm-hmm. but you're paying that in a maintenance fees. So someone else is doing it and you're paying a premium to ensure mm-hmm. that someone else is doing that. And that maintenance fee is beyond your control. If that property mm-hmm. management says your new maintenance fee is 600 when it was 500, that's mm-hmm. your new one. If they're turning around saying you need a roof and that's where it's coming from. You're not going to say, well, we can do the roof next year. It's too bad. That's your fee. So you have zero control over that and you have zero say into what they do. Um, That's the downside of a condo. Again, you don't have to lift a finger. Now, when you go into the single family home, now you have options, but now the whole bill is on you, not a portion of the bill. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, you need to have people to do it if you don't know how to do it yourself. And that Mm -hmm. whole burden is on you. And if it takes you a long time to figure it out, like if your roof is leaking and water's coming in and you can't find a roofer relatively quickly, more than likely, by the time you find someone and get them there, there's more damage than what you started off with and you have double the repairs. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So that becomes a burden. So it's nice to be handy if you have that kind of investment. Totally. So, and I, I have friends who are doing exactly that. Like they, they prefer single family homes, but they're, they're really handy and they enjoy the work. They like to buy a property, renovate it, fix it up, you know, sweat equity and all that. They're good at it. They like it. They've got the time to do it. Um, and I think that's an important consideration. Me not having any of those things, the skills or the time to do it or the interest, condos made more sense to me for the point that you you mentioned, right? Is I don't mind paying a monthly premium and having a strata board that handles all of this in exchange for peace of mind and a lack of work. Yeah, exactly. And that's what I believe as well. And my, my common belief is also condos have a time. Condos have a place for it. My belief is you buy pre-con and you sell at year seven. And I think that's your Mm -hmm. maximum return. And that's been my experience. And that's been my experience looking backward. Doesn't Mm -hmm. mean going forward, that won't change. Right. So So, I got pretty lucky then because I bought mine in 2016 and sold in 2023. So I hit your seven-year pre-con rule on the nose without knowing it. Yeah. Yeah. Because what ends up happening is after the seven-year, somewhere between seven and 10 years is when you start getting more expensive repairs then you start uh, seeing more than the typical one or 2%, you know, maintenance increase. That makes sense. So yeah, yeah, so it all, it all works itself out there. Now going to what you do, I mean, Mm -hmm. we've illustrated the benefits of real estate and we've illustrated reasons that may not be your only choice. Mm -hmm. Let's take a typical person graduated from university, paid off student loans, have their job. They're pretty steady right now. And they're trying to figure out where do they start off with their investment portfolio? What would mm-hmm. your advice be to that person? Yeah. And I have, I have to be, you know, I can generalize here, but obviously for every individual, it's, it's different. And when we 100%. create financial plans and, and investment plans, it's tailored specifically to the needs, goals, risk tolerances, and, and risk capacities of, of our clients. But I think there's probably a couple of high level uh, things to think about that are relatively common for, for most, if not all investors. Uh, one is, you know, you, you want to try to keep your savings rate high. Um, the engine that's going to drive your financial success over the long run really is your, is going to be your ability to save money. At a certain point, your portfolio gets big enough and the returns of your portfolio, you know, dwarf your, your savings, but to get there, you've got to have a high savings rate, right? So I think, um, I think saving is, is the number one thing to think about. Um, as I mentioned, diversification to me is, is, the cornerstone of good portfolio management, right? Otherwise, you're not you're not compensated for really for taking risks in uh, concentrated positions, right? If you can diversify a risk away, you should, because ninety percent of of your success in financial management is going to come down to avoiding catastrophes at the end of the day, right? And you only avoid catastrophes by playing defense, right? Things like making sure you've got life insurance and estate planning documents, and you're diversified and that type of thing. So diversification is key. Um, 
And then really, you know, a lot of it's going to depend on where you hold your investments. Like, is it a tax-free savings account or an RRSP? Um, you know, the tax treatment of different retirement accounts is going to be important. And that's going to come down to your, your own individual specific circumstances. But I'd say general rules that are going to carry you a long way, keep your savings rate high, you know, don't, don't spend above your means and can save continuously. Like don't try to you know, time markets and that type of thing. Just you got money, put it away, invest it. If you've got a long time horizon, then just kind of always be buying, right? Which uh, brings up a question here, right? Because I think I know your answer here, but I'm going to ask it uh, for anyone else who may not. Mm-hmm. Is that, uh, you know, there's a lot of times that we'll say banks promote taking out RRSP loans for mm-hmm. your RRSPs. Now, I got a thought process on this and I'll share that after. Mm-hmm. But uh, what would you recommend if someone goes to their bank and they said, hey, my bank said I should take a $5,000 loan and I've been pre-approved for Mm -hmm. that RSP loan. Should I take it? Should I not take it? What should I be uh, asking or looking out for? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, there's there's nothing wrong inherently with RSP loans like it's a it's a fine way to go about it if that's the position that you're in. Um, Again, it's going to be really situational because a the question is, do I need an RSP contribution in the first place? Like, is that the most effective use of of the dollars that I have is putting them in RSPs is something else more worthy like paying down debt, especially at high interest rates or, you know, contributing to a TFSA or my kids education funds and that type of thing. So the first determination is, is the RSP the best place to put it? And if it is, then the second question is, how do I fund that contribution? And so if you can't fund it from your own cash flow and your own resources, then the RSP loan becomes an interesting option. And I mean, the idea behind these is that you you borrow, you fund the RSP, and then as soon as you get the tax refund, you put that back onto the loan, uh, reducing the loan balance significantly. So as long as you do that, you manage the loan effectively. Um, I think it's a reasonable approach, but you also don't want to get caught in this perpetual cycle of that's the only way you're funding your RSPs is through debt, right? Um, Ideally, you want to try to catch up and get ahead of that at some point. Um, So, you know, get the RSP loan, pay down as much as you can, try to pay down that loan, and then try to fund that next year's RSP contribution with your own cash flow. So I think it's a good stopgap. I think it works. It's very situational, but I would be cautious of just perpetually getting in yourself this borrowing to invest cycle. Right. And that's where I was going to go with it. That's exactly where I was going to go with it. I, and the way that I personally think that if you're at the position where you need to borrow for your RSP, you thought about this way too late. Mm -hmm. Now I'm not referring to somebody who's got a ton of debt and they have to choose between paying the credit card or buying the RSP. That's not what I'm referring to. Um, I'm referring to the person who pretty much makes a hundred bucks, spends a hundred bucks and no consequential thought towards the future. And then the end yeah. of the year comes in and goes, ooh, I should have done this, right? Um, yeah, so and here's the other thing. Here's my problem with the RSP loan, and this is what typically happens. From what I've observed, keyword, right, is that, uh, yeah, you take your $5,000 RSP loan, you get $2,000 back as an example, and obviously that number is going to fluctuate based on your income and based on, you know, your what your maximum mark contribution could have been and all that. Um but just say that, that that's the numbers were hypothetical. That 2000 should go towards that debt, like you said, and then you should pay down the rest of it. But what I've observed is that people take that $2,000 and say, well, this is free money. I'm going to go on vacation. Yeah. But meanwhile, Passing they're still income. paying that. Yeah. And meanwhile, they're still paying that $500 a month. It wasn't intended on getting another bill. Like, and that's my problem with the loans is you get a loan. And all that becomes mm-hmm. is just another monthly bill. Yep. Now, well, and, and the issue with any type of loan is exactly that, right? I mean, you've got to, it's the behavior that needs to change, right? And so if you're the type of person who's getting into these situations where in theory, you should be able to afford the RSP contribution because your income is sufficient and maybe you're not managing your budget effectively. And so the RSP loan becomes the way by which you fund your RSP contributions. 
there's likely, you know, potentially it's, it's a behavioral modification that we need to work on, right? Which is let's start saving on a regular basis, pay yourself first, stop waiting to the end of the year to look for RSP money. Um, and unless you correct that behavior, you're going to get into that cycle, like I said. Yeah. Uh, see, I love how you said, I said that there. Pay yourself first. So many people don't know what that is or don't understand that because they hear pay yourself and they're like, wait a minute. I worked. I got paid. I did pay myself. I, I got paid. How do I pay mm -hmm. myself? Like mm -hmm. maybe we can unpack that and you can get more yeah. deep into that. And what do you mean by pay yourself first? Yeah. Yeah. Great question. In my opinion, the most important bill you have to pay is your future self, right? Like, do you ever, have you ever done something where you woke up and you thanked yourself for doing something yesterday? Like you mowed the lawn or something and thank goodness you did it yesterday because you don't have time to do it now. And had you not done it, the lawn would have gone out of control or whatever. But when you do that, you're, you're thanking your past self for some action you took, right? And I think savings is the exact same thing when you're, when you're investing your money and paying yourself first really means automate your contributions to your investment accounts, right? You get paid every other Friday. Think about setting up a, a withdrawal from your bank account every other Friday that automatically goes to whatever it is, your RSP, your TFSA, your kids' education funds, that type of thing. That's what I mean by paying yourself first, right? And really what you're doing is you're paying your future self because there comes a point at which you're no longer able to earn income, whether that's because you're retired or you're, you, know, you suffer disability or something else, you're not going to be able to generate an income for yourself. But your future self is going to need an income. And where's it going to come from? It's going to come from your past self having paid yourself first all along the way. 1,000%, right? And I, be honest, I've learned a little bit of this the hard way. And here's what I mean. I am one of those guys that could never imagine retiring. And I could not imagine, you know, it felt like that was a long time ago away. You know what I mean? Like, and obviously as time goes by, I'm getting closer and closer. Now hmm. you think, okay, well, you got to work, you work, right? And that no one can imagine that there's going to be a day they can't work. Now, here's a point I'm going to, I'm going to bring up. I'm 46 years old and I've blown one, blown one of my knees. Mm. I limp. I walk like a, I, I look like a, pardon my language, like a fucking penguin. <laughs> right? Like, and uh, now it's gotten a little bit better, but we're talking about six months of walking like a penguin and it's yeah. somewhat getting better. My gut tells me I'm going to need some future treatment on that knee. Yep. But where I'm going with this is at 46 years old, mm -hmm. that's what I'm experiencing. What's it mm -hmm. going to be like at 60 or 70? We all assume at 60 or 70, we're going to walk around like we're 20. Yep. It's not the way it is. Nope. Right? Could so, be. But for most of us, probably not. No. Right? So if I blow my knee at 46, chances are I'm going to feel it later. Right? Yep. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to affect me. And it's probably going to be a long-term effect. So that mm -hmm. being said, there's going to be a certain point. I'm not going to be able to run across the field or run across the street or run anywhere for that matter. Right? And I'm going to probably walk a little slower. So my ability to generate or ability to do stuff is going to be quite limited compared to what it is today. Mm -hmm. So if I don't think, you know, of my future or forward think or pay myself first, as you would say, mm -hmm. I could be lining myself for up for a whole lot of trouble. Yeah. Yeah. Right? And for somebody who works a physical job, that can be a career ender, right? Exactly. Um, physical injury like that. Right. And, you know, for I sit in a chair for most of the day talking to people. So if I blew my knee, I can keep working. Right. But that's not the case if I have some other type of injury that and we, I've seen, seen it with clients over the years, right. Where people have no intention of not working anymore and something happens and they become disabled and they're forced out of work earlier than earlier than they'd hoped for. Right. So paying yourself first is it's, I think the, re the word retirement these days is kind of overdone. Like really none of us really want to, not none of us, but most of us don't want to retire, right? Like I joke with my wife when I'm 90, you're going to be wheeling me into my client appointments because I'm still going to be doing 
what I do, right? But what we're all aiming for is some level of financial independence where we have control over our time and our calendar. We can choose to work if we want to or choose to work in a, you know, in a diminished capacity or work part-time or something like that, right? And the only way you get there is by exactly that, paying yourself first. I love that. Now, is there a certain percentage that people like, like I've heard so many things. Some people say, you know, you got to take 10% of your pay. I know the ultimate goal is as much as you possibly can. That's the ultimate yeah. goal, but there's usually, you know, numbers that people, uh, you know, spit out or spoo out mm -hmm. that they think that, you know, you should be saving at least minimum of this, no matter what. And, yeah. and I think I've heard uh, like three or four different numbers. I've heard people say 10%. I've heard somebody yeah. say put in 20% and I've heard the mm -hmm. number 15%. What yeah. was that magic number in your head? Like, what, what do you think is yeah. the magic number? So I hate rules of thumb in personal <laughs> finance. Like I hate <laughs> them. Like, so whenever people, people ask me this all the time, what do you think about, you know, the 4% rule for withdrawing from your portfolio or, or this question? And I, I don't have an answer because after seeing hundreds of clients over the years, it's so situational and it really, really depends. Like I have clients who, you know, earn a relatively modest income and have a very high savings rate and can now retire in their forties as a result. And I've had clients who earn hundreds of thousands of dollars and spend 80% of it. Right. Um, and so each situation is so unique. And the other thing is the timing at which you start these savings plans matters a lot. Like if you're 55 trying to retire at 65, the percentage of your income that you need to save to retire in 10 years is going to be far higher than somebody who's 20 and is just starting to work and has, you know, a 45 year runway, right? So they might be able to get away with 10% where you might need 35 or 40 or 50 or 60% of your income in order to, to be able to retire, right? So I think in the absence of like for our clients, what we do is we, we sit down and we draft the full comprehensive financial plan that looks at these numbers and says, you know, in order to get to this financial independence stage at age 55, based on your current expenses, if you want to continue those expenses until age 95, you need to save X amount of dollars at Y expected rate of return on a regular basis to get there, right? And so it's a very personalized number for, for everybody. Um, but I'd say if I had to put a number on it, I think when you're young, to your point, as much as you can, but if you were young and you saved 10% of your gross income every single year for 40 years, there's a, I think that's, that's a good rule of thumb to start with. I do think at some point though, this is a stopgap and like, yes, saving 10% of your income is great or 20%, but at some point you need to look at your own numbers and you need to figure out what your savings rate needs to be in order to meet your own goals. So in the absence of that, or before you've done that type of analysis, pick a number 10 or 20%. Great. And a lot of this is behavioral, right? Like it's about yes. setting up the behaviors and um, the patterns that are going to get you ahead and automating that earlier in your life creates this, I think, behavioral feedback mechanism where you're doing it. That's great. You're not likely to stop as long as you've got the income, right? Yep. Um, and there's a reward mechanism there, a positive feedback loop. And you see your account balance is growing and you go, oh, this is working. It's been five years and I've saved up X. I want to save more and you increase your savings rate. So, so it's a bit of an on answer, but that's what I got. Got it. That's a great answer, actually. Now, the other thing I love what you said, you know, is about the, um, oh crap. Now I lost my train of thought. I hate when that happens. Uh, um, no yeah, no, it, it's, you got a point, right? It's going to vary. Like it's old, oh, the behavior, that was the key yeah. component here, right? Because it's yeah. sort of like people say, I'm going to go on a diet and oh, the diets don't work. Of course they don't friggin' work. You're going yeah. on a diet, which means you eventually going to stop and go back to what you were doing, which is how you got to where you were to begin with, yeah. right? It's you have to change your behavior, not go on a diet, right? Yeah. You're changing your lifestyle. And part of that investment portfolio is creating a behavior that focuses on that. Mm -hmm. So uh, that, that's very true. Now, I got a little bit of a warped, twisted perspective. 
And my warp twisted perspective includes kind of where we are today. Like 20 years ago, that old age, at old age, uh, go to school, get a good education, get a job. It, it really mm -hmm. applied for a lot of people and it somewhat worked. Today, it is horse manure. Um, you can go to school, you can get a good job. And I promise you, when you get out of university, the first thing that's going to come out of your mouth is going, I didn't go to university to work at Starbucks, which is yeah. exactly what the kids today are saying. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying there's knocking anything on Starbucks. Don't misunderstand me. And actually, to be honest, it's probably one of the better places to work. They have benefits. They have, you know, you know, decent wages and it's constantly going up. You know, there's loyalty benefits there, but that's besides the point. I'm not promoting Starbucks either. I'm just trying to make a point. <laughs> and so I think things have changed. I think the education system has not kept up to date with the way things are today. And I'm not mm -hmm. saying don't go to school either, but I'm saying most people graduate, they get out, let's say around 22, 23. Now at 22, 23, more than likely you're still living in your parents' basement. Mm -hmm. With that being said, now you have the opportunity to experiment. Don't wait till you're 40 years old, then put everything mm. you saved, everything you've earned into something and lose it. Mm -hmm. Do that when you're 22 years old, you can then yeah. bootstrap, give it a go for five or six years. You put your all into whatever it is that your love or dream job is. And mm -hmm. in six years, you've either come across something that's wonderful, fantastic, hunky dory. Wow glad you did it or you friggin' mm -hmm. flopped and if you flopped you're recovering at 28 which gives you plenty of friggin' time mm -hmm. versus trying to recover at 60 yeah so that's my advice i say the first five years don't worry about anything mm -hmm. experiment after you've yeah. given it you're all in uh, in five years if it flopped you can go on your life and say i tried now mm -hmm. i followed through on my uh safety net and that's that yeah better than saying i should have tried coulda woulda shoulda are doing it later yeah. on in life and uh, having to uh, be the 20 year old at 50. Yeah. So. Yeah. And I think, you know, not everybody gets the opportunity or not everybody has the capacity to kind of take those risks too. Right. Like, I, I mean, yeah. some people are going to come out of university and have to immediately fend for themselves and they can't, you know, have a go at starting a business because they might have to put food on the table for their family, or maybe they're taking care of, you know, other family members or parents Absolutely. or, um, or themselves or, or young kids even. So, you know, but to, to your point, if you're going to experiment, yeah, I think doing it while you're young makes a lot of sense. And, and with respect to, uh, to school and education, I mean, yeah, sure. There's a lot of, there's a lot of educational pathways that are going to kind of lead to nowhere. I think um, I, I work primarily with physicians, right? So I have a yes. lot of respect for the educational foundation that they have. And if, unless you're going to do something like become a professional where it's a very particular skill that you are yes. going to learn and that skill is going to be in high demand into perpetuity, like medicine, um, that's obviously a worthwhile educational pathway, but I, I, that's what I was doing, right? It's like, I'm, I'm going to school my first year in university. I was taking, I think I took marketing, I took philosophy, I took business, <clears throat> I took statistics and I took, um, something else like chemistry, like literally just throwing stuff at the wall, yeah. trying to figure out what I want to be when I grow up. And I think a lot of us end up doing that all the way until we graduate from university and then go, okay, great. I've got this degree. I still don't know what I want to be when I grow up. And then you go to look for jobs and they're like, well, you don't have any specialized skill that we need. And then you end up working a, you know, a less than, than optimal job for yourself. Right. Right. Now, don't get me wrong. I wasn't knocking school as much yeah, as, yeah. you know, I'm just stating a point. And I agree with you. Mm -hmm. I would not want to be operated on by somebody who's never gone to school. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, and I'm not saying sure. anybody to defend me in court or on a lawsuit who's never opened up a law book. 
yeah. <laughs> right? So, I mean, the, like what I'm saying is just general statements, right? Totally. Like it's, yeah. it's, it's like you said, the guy who I'm telling to, you know, start your venture at 22 years old, as I laid the groundwork, I'm assuming you're living in your parents' basement and you're, you're no yeah. rush to go anywhere and everything's cool. If you're uh, full of student loans, you're uh, full of, you have car debts, you're uh, taking care of your, your sick mom, or you have to pay rent somewhere because you can't go home. Yep. You know, your circumstances are different. You got to do what you got to sure. do. But uh, the typical person who's living in their parents' basement are usually also the same people complaining that they don't want to work at Starbucks. Usually the one that's trying to take care of themselves are so busy taking care of themselves. They're trying yep. to figure out how to grow. And that's, again, standardized, typical. It doesn't apply to everybody. Of course. Yeah. So, that's why I have, where is it on this side? This keep, where is it? Here it is. Keep finance personal. That's, I mean, yes. uh, I, I took this off another Twitter user with his permission, but I, I think it's, it's just, it's such a good point, right? Like everybody's situations are so personalized. And this is the kind of the other issue I have with this kind of general advice that we see on social media places like TikTok and everywhere else where it's like, here's the the life hack to get rich. And it's <laughs> whatever it is, real estate or crypto or insurance. Like, yeah, those things can work well for individual cases, right? But be very careful taking generalized advice because it's not necessarily applicable to you, right? Absolutely, right? I, I agree with you on that. Now, that's the other thing, right? Because, and that's the unfortunate part is that people are good at emulating or trying to emulate. Mm -hmm. And let, let's look at, uh, I, I don't know if you noticed this, but since COVID started, there's been a lot more nastiness out there, a lot mm -hmm. less uh, empathy for people. Mm -hmm. um, and here's another part of that empathy, right? What you see. Um, everybody mm -hmm. idolized Steve Jobs. Then there's, uh, I don't know, a movie came out there that said the guy was pretty much uh, anal retentive and, uh, mm -hmm. you know, short fused. And then how many corporate people out there tried to be that short fused person thinking they were going to get, uh, they're going to get productive. Yep. You know what yeah, I mean? It's maybe. like, really, yeah. you know, it worked for one person. It doesn't mean it's going to work for you. There's only one yep. Apple, <laughs> yep. right? Yep. There's only one uh, Microsoft. There's only one Bill Gates. Yeah. You could be your own personal, you know, self. People don't want to go to another person of that other person. If they wanted to deal with Bill Gates, they'll go to Bill Gates. They're not going to call, go to some guy who's pretending to be him. You yeah, know, like, it's enough. like, wow, right? Like, and again, empathy is just, you know, there's this hustle culture, as, as we're calling it, or I'm mm -hmm. calling it. And that people out there where the, you know, you have to work to the bone. You have to, you know, pass out. You're working so hard. And I'm like, reality is like, why, why, why yeah. I'm all for working hard, but I mean, like, why not just do you mm -hmm. right? That's, no, I think that's, that's a reasonable take. Yeah. Yeah. I didn't really spend a lot of time on social media until like probably last year. So I don't, I don't know if I noticed a, a trend or a change through the pandemic, but I, I mean, it makes sense now that you're mentioning it, right? Like with just more and more people just spent more time at, at home and on their phones and their computers and um, yeah. yeah, probably proliferated and, and it became easy maybe easier to be a bit of a, a keyboard warrior too, I think. Right. And then more people wanted to become experts on things. And so there's, there's just so much content out there these days that picking and choosing what content is relevant to you or, or which sources are reputable, I think is, is tough. Right. So people just try different things. Like you said, they just try to emulate different people maybe and, and see if that works, but yeah, be yourself. Yeah, exactly. So there we go. So now with that being said, if somebody's out there looking for you, yeah. where would they go? Like, where would someone find you? Yeah, probably Twitter's the best place to find me. I'm pretty active on there. It's um, my handle is at Mark McGrath CFP. And uh, I'm also on LinkedIn with the same handle. But I'd say if I'm online, it's usually it's usually on Twitter. Makes sense. And uh, I'm going to ask you another last question, sure. but not least is how do you know you've had a successful day? Oh, that's a good question. 
Oh yeah. Caught me off guard with that one. I don't know. Uh, if my kids went to bed happy, then I've probably done something. I've probably been a good dad during the day and uh, that's, that's good enough for me. Great answer. All right, Mark, I want to say thanks so much for being on the podcast. It's been phenomenal. I had a great time. And uh, is there any last words you want to say to the listeners or viewers? Uh, yeah, no, I mean, first of all, thanks for having me, John. It was great to, to connect with you and I enjoyed our chat as well. So thank you. Um, yeah, I think just, you know, real estate is not necessarily a, a life hack or a passive income stream. It can be. Some people can do very, very well with it. I think you need the right personality, the right backstop, as you mentioned, to, to be successful with it. Um, so, yeah, it wasn't for me and I've got a financial background, um, but it might be for you. Sounds great. If you like what you saw and you want to see some more, subscribe to the link below.